Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave. Today's guest is Brad Beer. Brad is a physiotherapist based on the beautiful Gold Coast of Australia. He runs his own clinic, Pogo Physio, where he has, an exp- has a specialist interest in treating runners. He's the best-selling author of You Can Run Pain-Free, a physio's five-step guide to enjoying injury-free and faster running. He's also the host of the Physical Performance Show podcast. We chatted today about all things running. We go into techniques, footwear, exercises, everything that you can do to help yourself run pain-free or get back to running if you're currently injured. So buckle up and enjoy this one. It's a good one. Take care. And we are live. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, Brad. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your incredibly busy schedule to have a chat to us today all about back pain and running. Um, Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your background, your running background, and kind of how that led into you going down the line of being a physiotherapist with a specialist interest in running. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I'm pretty pretty simple. I only ever had two career aspirations. One was physiotherapy. Sorry, one was triathlon, uh, and two was physiotherapy. Uh, the physiotherapy idea came about because I was at the physio a lot as a junior triathlete, and my physio once said, "Rob, uh, I think you'd make a great physio," uh, and I latched onto that. It's funny that you aspire. You know, you move towards often something that someone's planted for you. So it's the power of encouragement, isn't it? And uh, mate, graduated, uh, had some decent injuries as a uh, 19-year-old with a big bike crash and brain hemorrhage. Ooh. Started university, mate, and uh, graduated and went straight into practice and was always pretty clear that, uh, you know, my background being triathlon and running, that that was an area I had a great passion for. But interestingly, throughout my university years, I... Uh, incurred a decent disc protrusion uh, and experienced three or four fairly miserable years there, uh, anxiety-laden years. And when upon graduating, I actually opened the practice and we called it My Back's Physio because the only thing at that stage I thought I wanted to treat was back pain, but I couldn't keep the running slash triathlon love at bay. Fantastic. So your initial focus was back pain, but then obviously you started... <laughs> That you know, you, you attract what you're interested in, really. So if your love of triathlon and that type, you're going to attract those those patients and those injuries, really, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved back pain management and treatment on the sense that it just seemed to be so poorly done. And I thought this is a big problem. Someone needs to step in and uh, you know, and and really have a, a designated practice. It had never really been done in the Australian physio landscape at yeah. that point. Uh, everyone just stood for everything, and I. The funny thing is, I, I was 26 when I opened the practice, and the very first patient came in with a calf strain and said, can you help me? And naturally, I could. Uh, so the vision was kind of blurred of only ever treating back pain from day one. <laughs> so they were probably equal loves, but uh, you know, here we are. That's brilliant. That's, uh, you open this back pain practice, and your very first patient is a calf strain. That's uh, <laughs> You couldn't write it, could you? It was a sign. So then when did you when did you move into the running spectrum and kind of become this, yeah, as you said, world-renowned running expert? When did that kind of take off? Oh, look, thanks, Rob. Uh, probably the turning point and, and, and you know, expert 
uh, it's funny, you never, I, I say I'm a student in my job every day. It's like, you know, you look at what there is to learn and the, the changes and it's, it's never ending. So, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a big space, but, but it really turned for me when I sat down to write, uh, my first book in 2014, 2013, 2014. You can run pain free. And it was just really pulling together a collection of ideas of, I guess, the framework that I'd use to approach treating running injuries and, uh, and also amalgamating my own personal stories and encouragement to people. Uh, so that was probably the turning point where, uh, people started to seek me out for, uh, advice and, and management strategies regarding running injuries. Brilliant. And then did that then shape your practice in terms of you thought, okay, I'm, I'm enduring it, so then I'm going to turn my practice into that as well. Is that kind of how it evolved, or did you turn your practice first? Yeah, we we were from my back's physio, Rob. Uh, like anything, uh, professional careers or owning a practice, it's such a journey. But from my back's physio, uh, we went into a uh, national group, a franchise, in fact, and uh, it was a pretty horrible, miserable five years, and a more horrible three or four years to extract ourselves from that. And uh, upon exiting that national group or franchise, uh, we rebranded as Pogo Physios. So we've been Pogo Physio for a good five or six years. And, you know, it is a general practice, but, but we say, you know, we're there to help people that enjoy and value being at their physical best. So obviously, I have that love of triathlon and running. But, you know, other practitioners inside the, the practice have their niches as well. Brilliant. That's fantastic. So then your practice now, obviously Pogo Physio is on the Gold Coast in Australia. Correct. So you're enjoying the sunshine and the <laughs> better than the miserable weather we have right here in the, in the UK. Well, we went, yes, from bushfires in Australia, as everyone knows, to, uh, to torrential rain and floods. So it's a, it's a weird weather pattern, uh, yeah. isn't it, worldwide? So weird. Right. So let's dive in then. Talking, obviously, this is the back pain podcast, but if we talk about running injuries initially, how common are running injuries Per stop, will every runner get injured? I know that's a kind of a common misconception which you address in your book, but uh, would you like to talk more about about running injuries? Yeah, Rob. Uh, it's funny. The book is called "You Can Run Pain Free," but that was written with the uh, you know the, the hope that it would encourage people to uh, not feel like running injuries were inevitable or they're a, a full stop, but rather just a pause and carry on. But uh, you know, in terms of the reality of running, if you don't want to run an injury, don't run. <laughs> but of course, that's not good advice. Uh, the the literature's pretty odd in terms of the uh, epidemiology or the, the incidence or prevalence, if you like, of running injuries. It's, it's reported at between 11 and 85%, which is kind of useless, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> that says a little or a lot. Um, probably more specifically, you know, uh, one paper states it to be between 2.5 and 38 injuries every thousand hours of running. Or probably the, the stat that I think most resonates with people is that about one out of five recreational runners will compete with some sort of running injury. So about 22% or okay. a fifth of all runners will be injured at any given time. There's quite a lot, and obviously we're quite biased because we see a lot of the injuries. So there, you know, we don't see the people who are who are running pain free. Really, we see the people who are injured. So our population base is always going to be slightly biased towards the uh, the injury side as well. And how many people are running and just running on those niggles, which probably could have some treatment or some physio, but they don't think they need it because they've just got a simple calf strain or 
a little bit of an achy back and often they think that's normal yeah i mean uh it is uh it is normal in the sense that we're, we're going to overstep the line at some point but um what's normal is is not normal is you know spending longer on the sidelines and necessary or developing fear around their running because of injuries so yeah not i do so what is the most common running injury i know we're going to talk about back pain specifically but what is the most common thing that is in the literature or that you see regularly yeah i mean probably the big three are kneecap pain patellofemoral pain achilles tendon problems and shin splints as they're sort of commonly known or medial tibial bone stress syndrome um so they they, they're your big three rob Fantastic. And then moving into back pain, what percentage of your running population would be coming to see you with a running-related kind of back pain issue? Yeah, good question. Probably not many. Specifically, runners tend to come in with running injuries because that's the thing that threatens them, Uh, whereas back pain for a runner, a runner often doesn't threaten them, you know, uh, unless it's really acute and stirred up. But couldn't give you a statistic, but, I mean, as we both know, you know, everyone's going to have back pain between the cradle and the grave. Yeah. Uh, you know, 60, 80%, we've, you know, people are pretty aware of the statistics, will have, you know, back pain through their life. So most runners will have back pain at some point. Yeah. And do you attribute that to a particular type of runner usually? So are you, are you aware that there are more runners which are predisposed to having a running back pain? Is that a, an amateur, a professional, a weekend warrior, a triathlete? Yeah, I, I, I'm really not sure, Rob. I, I don't think there would be one group more likely to incur a back injury or have experienced back pain than others. Um, yeah, you know, you can see a, an elite runner with a bit of a, a sore back. I just returned from Ethiopia working with a, a New Zealand uh, Olympic uh, distance runner finalist in the 10,000 meters, and, you know, he's had back pain. So um, the beginners can have back pain. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but you know uh, it can strike anyone i guess yeah hugely no and, and i think from my practice yeah it's very varied in you know i see i see a lot of runners and I, I i deal with a lot of back pain and you know i'm a chiropractor by training initially and you know people assume chiropractors just treat back pain so i'm probably also a lot more biased towards the back pain population than uh than than, than you are per se being 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 a physiotherapist but no i, I find it's a lot of uh, people get that what they describe as a normal back pain often after running um, and they get achy achy back pain as it kind of builds up as they're getting kind of further into that run and that could be 10 minutes for some people it could be two hours for some people and I will often attribute that often which which I kind of got from your book a bit as well as a hip stability um, and I know we're going to delve into the kind of the five steps which you have written down in your book for running pain-free one of them being hip stability. So would you like to briefly kind of overview your method for assessing runners and your five-step method, which you use for kind of helping runners with pain and helping them run pain-free? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, you know, uh, the book was released quite a few years ago and then it was followed up with a, uh, an expanded edition uh, circa 2017-18. So, and it's funny, you know, we're now 2020 and... Uh, as a progressive practitioner, I now look back and think, oh, I'd write it differently. The, the material still sticks and it's still valid, but, um, you know, working on a project for a book, just about master's runners at the moment, so the 35 or 40 plus year old runner, but, you know, the, the role of the pelvis with back pain, uh, for runners is, is pretty integral. Um, you know, if a runner 
has a deficiency of hip muscle control or strength, then that may represent a factor that could contribute to a bit of back pain or back stress. So I think most people could visualize, Rob, a runner that moves excessively around their pelvis or drops side to side, the medical term being a, a Trendelenburg. But, but if you can picture that, uh, that dropping or collapsing of the pelvis uh, on landing, then the back effectively snakes its way through a run. So if a runner can get stronger, and there are many ways to uh, assess for a runner's hip strength, they're what we call capacity tests. It could be a side plank. Um, it could be uh, pushing into a little thing called a dynamometer. Uh, it could be doing bridge, bridges. So there's many ways to assess uh, hip strength. But if a runner can improve that capacity around the pelvis, um, you know, it's a, it's a good strategy in terms of helping any back pain that they may have or potentially mitigating any risk of developing back pain if they're not yet experiencing it. So that sneaking you describe of the back pain, so as they are planting their foot and their you know pelvis is dropping on the opposite side, you notice that that basically overarching one way left or right of the back pain just you know builds up over time and leads to that kind of irritation, if you will, of, of the joints and the muscles of the spine. Yeah, I think it can represent an adverse load, you know, a pathological load in pattern that if the runner had more strength or control or capacity around that back hip area, then you would reduce um, some of those adverse stresses on the back. Mind you, stress uh, and load on, on anything in the body is good. You know, for many years, people feared that running was bad for knees and hips, and yet the literature is overwhelmingly favorable for people that get out and run for their, the quality of their knees and hips. Um, the exception being elite runners who run miles, they have the same uh, risk, but not necessarily rate, of hip and knee osteoarthritis as a sedentary individual. Really? But for those that do moderate amounts of running uh, have a much less incidence, uh, prevalence and risk of developing hip and knee osteoarthritis. And there's been some good literature in recent years for back pain for the intervertebral discs uh, where it showed that... Uh, Anyone that runs, whether you're a jogger, uh, less than sort of, let's say 20 to 40 kilometers a week, or a runner, uh, 50Ks plus in this certain study from Deakin University, that the intervertebral discs of these individuals, uh, of anyone that ran, was more robust, bigger, uh, and had better metabolism. So motion is lotion. Uh, Got to keep moving. And I think that's a theme that we've we've touched on through all of our episodes, that moving and load are so so important and the body responds to that and adapts and that adapt adaptation is is how we grow and how we get stronger and you know we we're aware of it from muscles you know you go to the gym you put make a muscle do some resistance work whether that's a squat or a bicep curl that muscle adapts and gets stronger and gets better at doing that movement and exactly the same thing happens with our tendons and with our discs and with our bones it, they love that load and they love that movement and they love that strength if they will yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's a big trap, isn't it, that I've got a sore back, I better uh, wrap myself up in cotton wool and, yeah. and rest. Yet uh, I recall uh, my university days having a flare-up of my disky back pain and I had the big list with my hips to the side and it was the, the grand final of the AFL, Australian football, uh, for the state league, the league just below professional. And... Uh, I was a sports trainer, so my job was to run out and basically pick up 
the players as they went down and giving some immediate care. And uh, I remember going, I can't move, I can't put my shoes on, but I can't not show up for the <laughs> grand final. So I'm going along and off I went with listed hips and barely able to bend an inch and uh, struggled to get in out of the car and off I went and sure enough, many players went down and I'm hobbling out there and they're saying, help me. And I'm like, I can't bend down, get yourself up. <laughs> so, but I think back now and, you know, I wondered if I was foolish at the time, but now I realize that that sort of level of, I guess, uh, self-efficacy or it's going to be okay to get on with it uh, is really favorable. So um, that was kind of forced, but, uh, you know, it's a good example of just getting that. on with it. Do what you can. Pain doesn't equal damage. It's certainly not final. I love that. That's such a good story. And it's, you can imagine these players writhing in pain and you're actually in more pain than them, but just, you know, hobbling onto the pitch. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was, a, it was an odd day, but I, I often say, Rob, uh, the best practitioner to help someone is someone that's actually been through it. And there's nothing like being able to look someone in the eyes and, and reassure them that this is going to be okay. It will pass. Um, people almost breathe a, a sigh of relief. Really? It's going to be okay. I craved hearing that, Rob, when I had back pain as a university student. All I wanted was someone to tell me it was going to be okay. I never got it, and I went to leading practitioners, and that made me realize just how poorly uh, back pain is often managed. Yeah, and, and, and you can see it. I mean, I'm sure you've done it and I've done it. When you say to a patient that you are going to be okay, this is not going to be there for life, you know, and you can see that relief wash over people, and they kind of sometimes tear up and get really emotional when they just you know, you're the first person to say to them that this will get better. They might have to do some work and it might take a little bit of time, but it will get better. Yep. And it's such an emotive thing, isn't it? Back pain, you know, that instant association that I've got back pain, now I've got a bad back. And, uh, you know, I often get people to write this down, Rob. I don't have a bad back. I have a normal back that's currently sore. (laughs) And they often look at me and sort of, funny in a funny way and then they get it and then they sort of smile and really okay great i don't have a bad back i've got a normal back that's currently sore so you get them to write that down and repeat it as like a mantra yeah we have these workbooks rob and you know we get them to write action steps and uh and things in there and i find that's pretty 14 years into my physio career probably the most powerful part of a consultation particularly initially is hey rob grab this pen write these things down you ready number one I don't have a bad back. I have a normal back that's currently sore. Oh, wow. Number two, pain does not equal damage. Number three, this will pass. You know, they're my top three uh, for back pain often. And, you know, on you go from there with more specificity. That's brilliant. So that's something that anybody listening now who may be suffering with back pain, whether you're a runner or not, can benefit from. So you can uh, get your pen, get your piece of paper out and write down those three statements and repeat them to yourself five times a day. And I'm sure that, you know, that will just ingrain like any good mantra will kind of just take over that's so i love that really i'm going to start using that today i think and you know, with, with my patients go for it wonderful so we talked about that hip stability and you said there's a couple of tests which you do kind of to to assess hip stability and the way i describe hip stability often is basically the ability to control movement so how do you you know is it, when i explain it to a patient how well that can control that load you know to stop that spine snaking so the tests you said are a side bridge and a bridges and you might use a dynamometer to measure how active or how strong those muscles are. If you take a side bridge, because that's a really, really good and simple test that most people can kind of understand and I'm, we'll, we'll put a picture of it in the show notes. Is there a rough guideline that, you know, whether from your experience or from the literature that people should be aiming for in, you know, in recreational runners? 
Yeah, Rob, there's a table that I have laminated uh, on a clipboard uh, in my consult room, which is uh, sourced out of one of Stuart McGill's Back by Mechanists uh, books, I think, Ultimate Back Fitness, and it's out of a paper uh, from, I think, some time ago, and it compares people without back pain to people that have had back pain. And then it just shows the mean scores for things like bridging. I can't remember every score on there. It's not in front of me at the moment. But, you know, what I normally like to, you know, see from people is at least a minute. Um, and, you know, obviously if they're more capable physically, they've got better physicality, then you know, you're going to increase that just arbitrarily just by sort of looking at them and getting a gauge for their ability. So if someone's really overweight, out of shape, you're not going to expect them to hold for two minutes. So, you know, I'd look at a minute as a bit of a general benchmark. Um, and then obviously you're looking side to side for any significant discrepancy. And what's significant mean? You tend to get a bit of a read on it. If someone does 20 seconds on one side and 60 on the other, you know, that's significant. If it's five or 10 seconds difference, it's, it's probably not. They might just be a bit tired from doing the other side. <laughs> yeah, you know, a bit distracted or, you know. And, and that's the thing with capacity tests. I mean, there's always more in people. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's just getting, doing something to get some numbers so someone can be given a goal or a target and go away and work on it and come back and hopefully have a win. Yeah, and it's a good win, as you said, for them to then work on at home and go, actually, I know that I've doubled this time or that minute feels a lot easier now than it did when I was in the consult room. So, so that's your kind of main hip stability assessment or, you know, the, there's a few that we spoke about. I'm sure there are many more you use as well. Do you then have a go-to typical exercise? I know you've, you've mentioned a few in, in your book and a bit. So there are, f- you know, a few typical exercises which are your standard. Yeah, I mean, you know, the exercise prescription is a, con- a continuum of, yeah. you know, looking at the individual in front. Uh, I had a lady in today with, um, you know, fairly marked tendon pain on the side of the hip and, you know, as much as I would have loved to have given her some side bridging, she just was too irritable to tolerate it. So she got a variation in standing. But, uh, you know, go-to uh, exercises, definitely a side plank. Um, it's just so reproducible and, and easy to do. I like wall sits, soleus versions up on people's toes, yeah. and you can do that double leg or single leg. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, things like, uh, sit to stands if people can tolerate it. Going sitting like a pistol, pistol squat on a chair. Um, you know, there's just so many, but uh, you know, it's really just figuring out where the gaps are for the individual and what's going to give them the, the best momentum with their their rehab program or you know the bang for the buck or time that they've got, if that makes sense. And it's obviously going to be very patient specific. If you have a 21 year old, you know, elite 10k runner compared to, as you said, a, a 70 year old, very amateur runner who's doing a walk run 5k is going to be a very different exercise program really, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and an astute practitioner recognizes that. And there's also a couple of mistakes I think many practitioners can fall into and one's giving people too many things uh, and, and two, not giving them challenging enough stuff. So keeping them at low level when they need to be really progressing um, so I think there are some common common flaws with programming. Brilliant. So that touches on that kind of hip stability, one of one of your five kind of, you know, approaches to, to helping people run pain-free. Can we dive into the other four a little bit and, uh, you know, and help people understand the other four approaches which you take to, to help assess people? Yeah, absolutely. Which ones do you want to start with? So why don't we start with the body type? Mm. 
yeah, I mean, that's, you know, just having some awareness of how you're put together. Uh, uh, you know, we refer to flippies, floppies, and stiffies, uh, which is just a lighthearted way of categorizing whether you've got a fair bit of mobility around your joints, uh, very little, or somewhere in the middle. Uh, I have observed that people that tend to have a bit more mobility, my observations over 14 years clinically, tend to be people that may incur higher uh, incidences of disky back pain. I have a feeling that's got something to do with the quality of the fibrocartilage and you know of those individuals. So, so you know, having an understanding of, of how you put together can help you streamline what you need to do to look after your body. An example, stiffies may need to spend a bit more time on mobility. Uh, floppies, people that move around a lot, uh, a lot of movement in their joints, may need to spend more time on strength and stability. Yeah, definitely. To, to, to strength and stability in order to control that, control those movement of those joints as they are putting load through them, really. You got it. And also that's going to then direct your exercises as well, depending on whether they're really stiff or whether they are really floppy, as he said. So, you know, people are going to spend more time mobilizing a joint compared to some people who are going to spend more time loading and strengthening it. Wonderful. Yep, as a general generalization. General, yeah, as a, as a very general, obviously, it's very specific. Um, the next one being running technique. So is there a, a technique that's, that, you know, a typical ideal technique or is that very individual for runners? Now, a lot of people are very fixed on what's ideal um, compared to what's perfect, compared to people should just run how they feel is normal. Um, so where's your kind of take on technique? Yeah, uh, how long we got? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, Roberts, uh, I, I say that and I laugh because um, once again, when I sat and wrote the book, I, you know, I needed to give people a few things to be aware of and they all still apply. But, you know, there was this big movement to correct people's running technique and it was a bit of a, an era of uh, therapists doing that and really the only people that I currently intervene with on a technique point of view are people that might be overstriding a bit too much, um, you know, taking too big a steps which may and has been linked to heightened increased joint forces of things like knees So, and I, I don't know of any research that links it to back pain but if you think of the mechanics and striking out in front of the body with those braking forces it it's likely to increase a bit of loading on the lower back. So so my interventions for technique are fairly minimal, kind of that adage, if it's not broken, let's not go near it. Um, but I am interested in seeing if there's excessive movement from behind with the pelvis and if someone's overstriding from the side. The overstriding is easy to, fairly easy to correct. It's just cueing people to run with a higher cadence or more steps. And the excessive movement from behind technique-wise, Rob, is best addressed through, uh, here's that word again, or phrase, strength and conditioning exercises. Yeah, fan- fantastic. So if it ain't broke, don't overcorrect too much, basically. And, uh, and so you mentioned those overstriders. Are they typically, so the people who reach out in front of them, those are the heel strikers that might, most people might be aware of. So they're reaching their foot right out in front of them and then you know slamming their heel into the floor. So then that force is going straight up their leg, through the hips, knees, ankles, lower back, everything. Yeah, I mean... Overstriders, you're right, Rob, do tend to, you know, land or strike, if you like, more on their heel. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the word horses there, which is really interesting because, you know, for, for years, really, the eternity of running biomechanics, people and researchers concentrated on those ground reaction forces, you know, somewhere two to three times body weight when we run. 
going back up through the through the body. However, what's interesting is they aren't necessarily good correlates with internal loading on our system, on our bones and our joints. Uh, this landmark paper that came out uh, just recently in the last year or two, you know, showed that for the shin, the tibia, the, the internal loads on that bone can be in the magnitude of 6 to 14 times the body weight. Wow. Uh, so we're not just talking about ground reaction forces of two to three times. Now, that does not mean that we should stop running because it's bad for us. Um, done the right way and in the right right manner, it's, as we've said, it's a, it's a fantastic thing for the quality of our joints, backs, and also um, cardiovascular health. Wonderful. Well, that's, well, six to 12 times is quite a significant amount of force going through a joint, isn't it? So hopefully that adapts to it and, as we hope, gets stronger and stronger because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. And then footwear was being the being the next step. Um, do you change people's footwear frequently? Um, Good question. Uh, let's just say carbon shoes, hey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's not do that. No, look, uh, I mean, let's not go, go there. It's such a big topic. Yeah. Rob, uh, yeah, look, the thing with shoes and footwear is, I mean, we're conditioned by footwear companies to believe that shoes are the, the magic bullet, the panacea of all injuries. So let's replace our shoes and we'll be right. Uh, the reality is footwear may be a contributing factor for some injuries. However, it's really the major factor. It's a consideration. So, you know, people often overlook their training loads. 60% of running injuries are uh, caused by training errors. Too much, too soon, too hard, too fast, all those sort of things that we can fall into uh, and uh, they tend to overlook the fact that they've done that and rather they focus on maybe they're in the wrong pair of shoes. So I, I have a, an earnest belief, Rob, you can cut me and I bleed this, <laughs> but if you're a runner, you should be able to wear whatever shoe you want um, and I'm not talking about things like the width of your foot, you know, you need a shoe that is, is comfortable, that's yeah. what the literature does show, that comfort is the best indicator of a good footwear selection choice um, but you know you should be able to wear whatever you want uh, if you're not making training errors and if your body has the capacity to absorb the running loads that you want to do brilliant so as long as people aren't running in flip-flops i think that's the uh, or thongs as you might call them sorry it's a yeah i mean uh yeah um yeah exactly i'm sure some people tried but uh and i, I like that a lot as long as it's so the comfort being a, a really really key thing to look out for yeah comfort there was a good uh, editorial that came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, authored by Chris Willey and uh, Chris, Na- uh, sorry, Rich Willey and uh, Chris Napier. Yeah. And it was a classic sort of line out of the uh, editorial that said runners should be instructed to shoe to choose uh, one pair of shoes over the other, no more than a blue shoe over a red shoe. I like that a lot. In other That's words, a really good takeaway. Don't knock yourself out and, and grab what you want. Fantastic. <laughs> So not very popular. There are times, you know, there are times, sorry, Rob, where you might say that someone would benefit from having a greater stack height under their under their foot for an Achilles tendon or yeah. a more flatter, minimalistic shoe. Someone's got kneecap pain, so there is there is the ability to prescribe a shoe, but as a general rule of thumb, knock yourself out. Brilliant. So then the last one, almost like a bit a big one. We spoke about hip stability being the fourth one. If the fifth you know, key takeaway is rest. And that's a big thing that a lot of runners, a lot of athletes generally struggle with. Because I know you, you say the word rest and people think I've got to sit on the sofa for two weeks. But your interpretation of rest and my interpretation of rest is, I use the term relative rest a lot. And it just means dial back 
often. Is that do you, do you take a very similar approach to that? Yeah, it's a great phrase, relative rest. Uh, yeah, I. It's one thing I've grown in awareness of and appreciation of as a practitioner, also as a recreational athlete, is you know as the, as the book chapter is titled, the power of rest. And probably the phrase that sticks with me the most is from. Shona Halson, a recovery scientist from Australia who headed up the Australian Institute of Sport for basically 12, 15 years working with elite athletes. And Shona said, the only training you are benefiting from is the training that you are recovering from. So, you know, when you let that sink in, you're not getting fitter from the session you've done. You're not getting fitter from those rehab exercises for your back pain you've done. You're getting fitter when you absorb that work. Now, Here's the art and science. How do we know when we've absorbed it? Uh, you know, we need to consider so many things, uh, mood, sleep, nutrition, uh, training. So the best indicator of whether you've absorbed it is, is really your mood. Uh, you go through the sciences and it comes back to if you're feeling a bit off, then just take heed of that. Fantastic. And then that's different for every runner. So that might mean a day off running, but it might mean for some other people, we're not going to do a hard 15k we might do a, an, an easy 10k and take out the hills or you know whatever it might be so it's going to be very individual for people's experience and their their injury per se yeah and i mean one of the flaws rob exactly of athletes is they often are rigid you know it's part of why they uh, are successful in in their recreational pursuits or or elite pursuits you know they're rigid the program says do this i'm going to do it but the closer you get to looking at some of the best performers, the more flexible they are, the less rigid they are. If they're tired, they're going to change the program. Uh, for years, I thought, I want to run marathons. I better be running seven days a week. Uh, I'm tired on Monday, but I've got to go out and get 10K done. Uh, these days, I'm like, I've done a long run on the weekend. I am doing nothing on Monday. I'm going to absorb that long run. How crazy to go out and yeah. spend a few hours running around and then push yourself on Monday and not get the most out of that big run you did so listen to our bodies monitor mood and uh your body never lies so true good takeaway so the do you ever reg outside of major trauma do you ever recommend complete rest so stopping completely from you know any running at all yeah i mean bone stress injuries uh yeah. you know are a large part of a runner's world and there's, there's often not a lot of wriggle, sorry, there's very rarely wriggle room with a bone stress injury. There's two categories, high, high risks and, and low risk bone stress injuries. Things like high risk can be up in the, the thigh bone or the femur, um, you know, up in the, in the neck there of that, where if you, or bones, some bones in the feet, if you push through those and fracture it, you're likely looking at pins. Yeah. Um, and that could be a career ending injury. So, uh, there's not a lot of wriggle room with bone stress, so often there is forced rest. You need X amount of weeks off, and then we're going to build you back up while you work on your strength. But for things like tendons, you know, the longer you don't run, the more deconditioned you make that structure. So, yeah, it's really only bone stress injuries, Rob. Or if someone's just so flared up, the wise thing to do is to give them a little bit of time off. Um, but you know, you want them doing other things in that window. Rarely is it just go and sit in the corner and, and decay. Yeah. <laughs> decay. I quite like that phrase. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I think just, just to clarify, you know, bone stress, a lot of people are familiar with the term stress fractures, uh, kind of outside of bone stress. So those stress fractures 
again, and they can be as career-ending injuries. You know, I've, we've all seen lots of them, but especially in the feet, and they can be really, really nasty. And if not got a handle on, really, really severe to to get people even back walking normally again. It can be really painful in a a long, a long recovery period. Yeah, I mean, uh, and people, oh gosh, you know, they can miss them. They think, uh, just take a couple of days off and push again. And uh, yeah, it, you know, hopefully no one ever ends up at that point. But, you know, if you're not sure, see someone that knows what they're doing and get an accurate diagnosis, yeah. step one. I had a young triathlete in recently, he's the Australian junior champion, and we picked up quickly. He had eight bones in his feet, or his foot, I should say, that were under stress, the severe stress reactions. So, you know, this is a kid that can go on and have a professional career. Uh, so, you know, it's so important to get an accurate diagnosis. Wow. Eight. That's quite significant. Yeah, I'm trying to think how many bones are in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> 14. So There's not many more. Two-thirds of them. Oh, poor chap. So we actually had, did have a few questions from kind of audience. We have a, a Facebook group, the, uh, the, the Back Pain and Sciatica Support Group UK. But actually, you've answered quite a lot of them. I mean, one of the, the key ones was about running through pain. Um, so you spoke about kind of basically getting an assessment, you know, it, it, I think is going to be key with that. And some injuries, are, you know, you can manage the load with a bit of rest and some injuries obviously need stopping and complete dialing back from. So expert opinion, I think, is the, the key with that. The other one was about running on hard surfaces. Um, a lot of people kind of, you know, two or three people specifically said, I've been told not to run on tarmac um, and to keep running on softer surfaces or trails because it's bad for my joints. But I think also you've, you've kind of myth busted that one as well, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. One of the British triathletes, uh, world champion, actually, uh, just former world champion in recent years, she commented that, you know, running on uh, in Australia, there's more concrete uh, compared to running in England or the UK where there's more asphalt, you know, a bit more absorptive and her belief was that she had a bit of a niggle because she'd been running on concrete. But uh, it's not always the case. Often the firmer the surface, the less loads because you're not in contact with that surface as long. So masters runners often think, oh, I'm going to run on the grass. But, you know, it's wise to, to look for the firmer surface you can find as a masters runner uh, for various reasons. So surfaces get a lot of airtime, but really they're not that great great a consideration particularly not for back pain that's interesting you very rarely advise someone to run on a specific surface over over another one exactly i mean i will tell masters runners avoid soft surfaces stay on the footpath because uh their main injuries are achilles tendons yeah. calves calf, calf strains and um plantar fasciitis or fasciopathy and uh if they go and run on the soft surfaces there's this greater strain or elongation of those tissues so it's the opposite. It's a bit like treadmill running. People think that running on a treadmill is less load, but at the Achilles tendon, it's 34% greater loads. Really? I was unaware of that. That's that's really good. To- yeah, so it's almost like do the opposite to what common sense might say and you're often going to be okay. <laughs> good good to know. Well, thank you very much for that. Well, I think that wraps up about uh, my, my questions from today. So thank you ever so much for joining us. Where can people go to find out about more, a bit more about you, about your book, um, and people for runners who just might might want to, uh, you know, brush up on their knowledge? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty easily found with a fairly different surname, Beer, B-E-E-R. So just Brad Beer in any of the social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, uh, uh, our practice uh, website, which, you know, we uh, like to put out regular 
uh, good blogs is Pogo Physio. Uh, we also also host a, a weekly podcast, Rob, called the Physical Performance Show, which explores um, experts, coaches, athletes, their sharings all around the theme of helping people perform at their best. So, so that's where uh, people can find me. The book's available online, obviously, wherever books are sold. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us. I'll get back to your uh, very hot evening over over in Australia, and we'll get back to our very rainy day over here in the UK. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, there's a there's a great affection for the UK, Rob. So we're hey, we came out. We were founded on the worst of you guys. So uh, there's, a, there's a link there. <laughs> Brilliant. Wonderful. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. I'll let you get on with your day. So thank you so much for joining us and or joining me and uh, in having a chat. Thanks, Rob. Have a good uh, have a good day, mate. You too. Have a good evening. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. See you, see you, mate. Bye bye.